0: Today's conversation is an important breakdown of the importance of mitochondria, and most importantly, three things, three superfoods that support our mitochondrial health, and three foods that actually destroy and damage our mitochondria. Welcome to the Drew Proett Podcast. Each week, we explore the inner workings of the brain and the body with one of the brightest minds in wellness, medicine, and mindset. This week's guest on the podcast is Dr. Terry Walls, and she's here to help us understand the power of mitochondria and the daily actions that we do that both harm and help them. Dr. Terry Walls is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa, where she conducts clinical trials on all things autoimmune and multiple sclerosis. In 2018, she was awarded with the Institute of Functional Medicine's Linus Pauling Award for her contributions to research, clinical care, and patient advocacy. Dr. Walls has secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, which confined her to a tilt-reclined wheelchair for four years, but something magical happened. Following something that she now calls the Walls Protocol, Dr. Walls restored her health using a diet and lifestyle program that she designed specifically for her brain, and now she pedals her bike to work every single day. At one point in time, Dr. Terry Walls was banned from speaking at the Multiple Sclerosis Foundation because her ideas were considered too controversial. A few years later, she was awarded a million dollars by that same organization that banned her to further her research in this space. Dr. Walls is the author of The Walls Protocol, A Radical New Way to Treat All Chronic Autoimmune Conditions Using Paleo Principles, and the cookbook, The Walls Protocol, Cooking for Life. Even if you don't have an autoimmune condition, the principles that Terry teaches through the Walls Protocol are something that we can all implement and that can drastically make our life better. Stay tuned for a fascinating conversation about mitochondrial health with Dr. Terry Walls. Dr. Terry Walls, a pleasure to have you here. We're going to jump right in talking all things mitochondria. Tell us some of the top three superfoods that are out there that you use regularly as part of your program and that you consume regularly that people listening and watching today can take to supercharge their mitochondrial health and help them heal from disease and also lose weight and have more energy. Okay.
1: So I'm going to start with the things that are probably the easiest for people to add to their diet. Uh, And we could start with bone broth. Uh, Bone broth, um, which is an ancient food that are Ancestral mothers and fathers have been eating again for uh, thousands of generations. Uh, tremendously nourishing, uh, filled with uh, collagen, amino acids, uh, great source of minerals, uh, It's easily absorbed. Uh, it will nourish your gut. It will allow you to absorb your other nu- nutrition. If you don't have a healthy gut, you can't absorb any of the nutrition that your cells and your mitochondria need. So, you know, the very first thing I want people to do is be sure that they have a healthy gut so they can absorb their nutrition. So I, I want all of my patients to have bone broth, uh,
0: and. Plus, it's delicious. And it's actually a really great source of protein. If you look at a lot of bone broths that are out there, I know there's some brands that you're affiliated with. You look on the back, it's like 16 to 20 grams of protein for a serving. That's, it, that's like incredible. It's a lot of protein. Uh, it will
1: not spike your blood sugar. Uh, it's easily absorbed. If you're having uh, problems with belly pain, uh, bloating, uh, constipation, diarrhea, bone broth will still be very well tolerated. And it will improve your nutrition. It will improve your ability to digest and assimilate the rest of the food
0: that you eat. So that's where I, I, I start all of my patients uh, on bone broth. And when you're starting people off on that, and we'll get to the other two foods that you recommend here in a second, when you're starting patients off on that, is it uh, have as much as you want? Is it uh, a certain amount of recommendation in a day? Well, you know
1: in general, uh, people will be much more successful if you start slow and then gradually
0: increase. Anytime um, you're including something new, just anything start, new. start just, slow. Just
1: start start gradually. Um, so you could start with a half a cup uh, and have it like a tea, uh, and you just have it straight. Uh, if Then if you wanna get a little fancier, you could add a little uh, coconut milk, uh, some turmeric and have basically golden milk, uh, which I think is uh, totally delicious. Um, Or you could add any of the other spices that you enjoy, rosemary, uh, thyme, uh, basil. Uh, You could add um, uh, 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 literally any culinary spice that is part of your ethnic tradition. I like putting
0: cumin, for example, and it's like you get all these fantastic polyphenols from all these great spices with this incredible base, which is bone broth.
1: Which is which is wonderful. So it's a lovely beverage. It's a it's a great thing to start your morning with. You can sip on it uh, during the day. Once you're comfortable with a half cup, then you could go to a cup. Uh, then uh, when that is comfortable, you could have a cup uh, twice a day. You could also have it uh, as a starter before your meals. Uh, you know, and and again, this is something that our grandmothers would have traditionally done. They would have served a cup of consomme or broth prior to the meals. That was a very traditional uh, kind of food. You know, and I I have this wonderful cookbook from my grandmother, in the 1930s, and my great-grandmother from the 1800s. Mm. Uh, In both of those books, uh, talk about serving broth uh, before your meals.
0: Mm. Uh, That
1: that was absolutely a tradition.
0: I love that. One one of the next foods we have on our list here that, uh... You put together for me is we have fiber. Now, when people look at fiber sometimes, they don't immediately think, like, wow, how's that related to mitochondria? But tell us the connection between fiber and what kind of fiber you're talking about when it relates to gut health and mitochondria. This episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker. So I've experimented with every eating approach in the book. I'm talking about raw foodists, vegan, vegetarian. Meat eater, you name it, I've tried it. And the truth is, at first I felt pretty darn good on all of them. Until I didn't. Now through a bunch of trial and error, I found that following one specific eating style wasn't the answer for me. And maybe it hasn't been the answer for you either. That's why I'm super excited about the company Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker helps take the guesswork out of living optimally. By looking at your blood work, DNA, and personal preferences, they create a nutrition, exercise, and lifestyle plan that's specifically designed for you. And now you can connect Inside Tracker to your Apple Watch to unlock deeper, more precise insights into your health. With real-time exercises, resting heart rate, and even sleep data synced with your Inside Tracker plan, you can truly wear your health on your sleeve. Right now, Inside Tracker is offering my podcast community a very special offer of 34% off your order. Just go to InsideTracker.com slash Drew, that's D-H-R-U, to get your discount code and try it for yourself. That's Inside, I-N-S-I-D-E, Tracker, T-R-A-C-K-E-R.com slash D-H-R-U for 34% off until the end of November. You know what's been a game changer for me as far as my fitness goes, my daily performance, and my overall health? Sleep. But you know, sleep is not as simple as just closing your eyes and hoping for the best. The quality of your sleep is ultimately what matters the most, which is why I love wearing my Whoop device. Whoop is a personalized digital fitness tracker and health coach platform that monitors your physiology 24-7. WHOOP helps me figure out my ideal sleeping schedule and gives me a sleep score every morning that's based on how the sleep I get compares with the sleep my body actually needs based on my activity from that day. WHOOP also monitors my heart rate variability, resting heart rate, and respiratory rate, and uses these numbers to give me a recovery score. This recovery score number lets me know how hard I can push my body the next day, which is very important for me to manage my expectations and feel my best. And it calculates my physical stressors and gives me a strain score, which is super helpful for giving me the nudge I need on busy weeks to make fitness a priority. Right now, WHOOP is offering my community 15% off their WHOOP membership. Just go to join.whoop.com and use the code DREW15 at checkout. That's join.whoop.com and enter the code D-H-R-U-15 at checkout for 15% off any WHOOP membership. Now let's get back to today's episode.
1: Well, you know, I'm going to take us back to our, our beginnings when we were all single cell organisms, organisms back in the ancient seas. And we uh, were engulfed by the bigger organism, you know, and had the first mitochondria. And we evolve into our multicellular organism. And we develop our first gut. Of course, you know, that's uh, millions and trillions of uh, generations ago. But when we evolved that first gut, we brought with us the microbes that were living in the sea. And those microbes would help us digest our food. They would... uh, Uh, make some vitamins. They would eat the food that we're eating and make their own microbial metabolites that get into our bloodstream and help us run the chemistry of life. We have a very intimate relationship with those ancient microbes. They have evolved right along with us. We have a uh, very cooperative, uh, collaborative relationship with them. And again, if I'm going to have good health, I have to be able to assimilate uh, uh, the nutrition uh, and to digest the nutrition. That means I need to have healthy microbes. My microbes, again, for millions of generations, humans were eating about 150 grams of fiber every day. Now we're eating like less than 15 grams of fiber a day. We're starving our friends, we're starving those ancient microbes that co-evolved with us over these millions of years. We need more fiber so we can fertilize our good friends, so we have a healthy gut. Because if I'm going to nourish my cells and my mitochondria, my gut needs to work well. So I need the bone broth, I need more fiber, so my gut can work well and I can absorb the rest of the nutrition that I need.
0: Great. And I have a bunch of questions about fiber because a lot of people start to include more fiber. They have challenges. They notice that their gut can't handle it. We'll come back to that um, in a little bit. So we'll put a little pin in that. There's so many things that you talk about. I'm like, man, we could talk about a whole, you know, two, three episodes about that, but we'll come back to fiber. The last one on the list of the top three foods that support mitochondrial health is a food that we've talked about before. But again, I don't, Know if people understand how important this food is, especially when it comes to your protocol, and that's organ meat. What does organ meat have to do with mitochondrial health? You know,
1: our our organs, um, particularly heart, tongue, liver, uh, uh, gizzards, um, are really great sources of fat soluble vitamins, uh, uh, vitamin A, uh, pre made, retinol. Uh, if it's a grass fed, grass finished animal, it's going to have vitamin K. Uh, it will have uh, a lot of B vitamins, it will have coenzyme Q, creatine, carnitine, lipoic acid. So all of these, uh, and will also have easily absorbed uh, potassium, easily absorbed uh, sodium, easily absorbed uh, magnesium, uh, and depending on uh, um, the heart also has easily absorbed calcium. These nutrients are uh, important core factors for how the mitochondria function. Our ancestors would have prized uh, the eyes, the brains, uh, the heart, uh, the liver. And if there was plenty of um, the hunt was successful, they might have left the muscle meat behind for the hyenas and the jackals, but they would have taken the organ meat uh, back to camp.
0: You even notice that animals in the wild also kind of first go for the organ systems. Absolutely. They're not first going for that. You know, I was watching a little uh, little Facebook documentary on a gentleman in uh, Africa who has a sanctuary for lions. And one of the things that he was talking about is that he noticed that over a period of time, because they are running this sanctuary, they were primarily just feeding the lions muscle meat. All the lions started to develop these nutritional deficiencies. They're deficient in vitamin A. They're deficient in, in all all these different nutrients and they only found out because a vet came and looked at them and said, you know, are you giving them organ meats or at least supplemental nutrients that are put into the muscle meat? And they said, no, we're just giving them regular muscle meat. He said, that's why they're nutrient deficient and that's why their hair is falling out and that's why they don't seem like their eye health is as good. So even... All animals, but I know that the idea of regularly including organ meats into our diet is tough for a lot of people, especially for people who are vegan or vegetarian. And I know you came from a vegetarian background. Twenty I was years. Twenty years you were vegan, vegetarian. I also grew up ve- uh, vegetarian and became vegan for six years. So we'll talk more about organ meat a little bit later. Um, and obviously, people are free to respect any sort of tradition or uh, mm-hmm. philosophy they follow with um, with food, but we don't want to not bring up the benefits of something so crucial?
1: Retinol, Um, it's very important. Uh, People know that the deeply pigmented vegetables have all sorts of carotenoids in them, uh, polyphenols, which are fabulously good for us, but they are not the pre-made vitamin A retinol. And we need retinol for our eyes. We need retinol for uh, proper function and uh, division of our cells. We need uh, retinol in our mitochondria. And depending on your um, genetics, you'll either be very efficient at converting ret- um, carotenoids, uh, beta carotene, into retinol, or you'll be relatively inefficient. Uh, and, and I tell my folks who have complex chronic disease states that they're more likely to be inefficient in that they would benefit from having some pre-made retinol. And that if they eat, Liver, you know, once once a week they'll they'll get their retinol, but I but I also remind them because uh, I, I have plenty of carnivore friends who are um, eat only animal products, uh, and they were telling their followers to have a pound of liver every day. And, and I have to remind them that retinol does have a uh, toxic effect and a problem if you're like like many of our. Uh, uh, nutritional compounds. Uh, if you get too high, they can be deleterious. If you're too low, they'll have a disease state. If your retinol is too high, you can end up with fibrosis of the liver, so mm-hmm. you have cirrhosis. You end up with fibrosis of the lungs, with uh, pulmonary fibrosis. You can have fibrosis of the heart. And the problem is you don't you know, recognize that until the disease is fairly advanced. You've now stored a lot of retinol in your fat And now you've got a very difficult problem uh, to treat.
0: Mm. So there's this gentleman who's like pretty popular on social media and a lot of young people are like following him. And, you know, he's kind of had a little bit of controversy that's there. Infamous, I guess he would say, his name was the liver king. And, you know, he's known for having liver every single day. And if you were the doctor for the liver king, you say, hey, listen, this is going to be a problem. (laughs) This is going to be a problem. Too much of something that might be good at a lower dose that's there." Can actually have detrimental impact.
1: Yeah, you know, and he won't know until the disease is really quite
0: advanced. Mm, Because it's very difficult to use our modern tests to see how far things have developed.
1: So, if you want to know your um, vitamin A stores accurately, um, uh, it's a very sophisticated test. The the blood levels uh, don't tell you what's stored in your fat. Uh, So one would take a radioactive uh, isotope, uh, uh, so radiolabel retinol, uh, inject you in it, and then let that equalize, um, and then scan you. It's a very sophisticated test. It's only done in a few research labs. Uh, And the result is clinically, uh, people don't know how to diagnose uh, vitamin A toxicity, until you're sort of at the end stage disease. And part of the, the problem is, the, the early deaths uh, due to vitamin A toxicity, when you take an overwhelming dose of vitamin A, as in polar bear liver, that can kill you acutely. It's, it's hard to do, it, it can occasionally happen, but the problem with uh, vitamin A is not the acute poisoning. It's the slow uh, poisoning uh, from uh, overload. So I want everyone to take uh, uh, vitamin A. I want you to have liver uh, once a week, like six to eight ounces, but not a pound
0: every day. That will come back to bite you. You know, you can't talk about mitochondrial health and the benefits of it without analyzing and looking at our modern day society and looking at the things that are damaging it because our mitochondria are quite sensitive. So on the topic of foods, and then we'll go into other lifestyle factors that you've written about a lot, like sun exposure, light exposure, exercise. But first, let's go to food. Diagnose sort of our modern day society. What are some of the top foods? Let's pick three, if you can, at least, that are damaging our mitochondrial health.
1: You know, uh, we, in an effort to uh, deal with hunger, uh, uh, many, many years ago, uh, we created this program of subsidizing corn, soybean, and wheat, so we could generate more calories, Uh, which then uh, big food used to make a lot of processed foods uh, out of the sugar products, the soybean products, the wheat products. Um, And so now we have uh, this food industry that delivers a lot of calories that have been stripped of vitamins, minerals, uh, polyphenols. Uh, And if we did a a measurement uh, with carbon labeling, to say, you know, how much how much of your carbon is due to corn or soybeans or wheat? Um, it's a, a stunning amount, uh, and we, we should not be surprised because so many, uh, so much of our diet is derived from. Uh, a, sh- a corn product, a wheat product, or a soybean
0: product. And when you're saying about the carbon, you're not talking about the environment. You're talking about like literally. If we could do an analysis of what your cells are made up of, we'd see that people are made up of a lot of these things that, that are related. Came to that.
1: Out of cor- corn, soybeans, and, and uh, wheat. Shocking, wow. uh, disturbing. We should be you know being made up of uh, uh, carbon that came from a wide variety of plants. We should be uh, be be uh, made up of. Uh, amino acids that came from a wide variety of sources, not just uh, one animal. Our ancestors, again, our ancestral mothers and fathers had amazing diversity of their food sources, uh, their protein sources, their fat sources, uh, their uh, carbohydrate sources. And we have a very narrow range for our fat sources, uh, our protein sources, uh, and our carbon sources uh, to our detriment.
0: Terrible. So when you look out there and you look at soy, corn, um, and then what was the other one that you mentioned? Wheat. Wheat. What are some of the other derivative products that are coming from that? For example, some people say we should be a little bit worried about seed oils. Other people say that, no, seed oils are kind of fine and it's okay to have them in your diet. What's your take on seed oils like canola oil? and corn oil and a lot of these oils that are being derived from these um, top top foods that are in, being consumed in America especially?
1: Well, if I look at the um, ideal ratio of omega-6 fats to omega-3 fats, um, you know, the basic science would tell me that a ratio of four to one uh, it, uh, has the healthiest cell membrane, uh, it has the uh, lowest incidence of uh, autoimmunity, has the uh, best mood, uh, lowest incidence of heart disease. If we have diets that are high in all these seed oils, uh, processed foods, then that ratio, instead of being four to one, is 15 to one, 20 to one, 30 to one, 45 to one. And that um, leads to poorly functioning cell membranes, Uh, It leads to more autoimmunity, leads to more metabolic syndrome, uh, leads to more depression and anxiety. So simply for getting the ratios correct, I I, want to get rid of all of those uh, seed oils. I'd much rather uh, uh, people are using monosaturated fats, um, uh, lard, uh, tallow, again, our ancestral mothers and fathers, uh, we didn't... The, the kinds of fats that we were using were rendered animal fats. Uh, then we we discovered olives and we had olive oil. Uh, the the use of these uh, refined oils uh, uh, that's they're refined. They they're not cold pressed oils. They're refined using solvents. So there are solvents left in those oils. You try to reduce the solvents. You can't get rid of the hexane uh, entirely. Uh, and when you take these seed oils and you heat them over, 100, <clears throat> over 180 degrees, then you're going to take some of those double bonds and move them uh, into the transposition. Uh, and when they're in the transposition, they, when they get incorporated into my cell membrane, they'll make my cell membranes less effective. Uh, we you know, when I, when I was in medical school, Uh, We're very gung-ho on margarine, Uh, uh, hydrogenated fats. That was going to be superior to butter. Um, But we now know those trans fats uh, mean the cell membranes are less effective. If your cell membrane is less effective, you can't get signals into the cell, out of the cell. The cells um, are, are not working very well. You have a higher rate of cancer you have a higher rate of heart disease, you have a higher rate of anxiety, depression, a higher rate of metabolic syndrome.
0: Mm, That's great. So it's really paying attention to that ratio. I did a test many years ago. It was one of the reasons that I, at the time for me, again, I want people to do whatever they want, stopped being vegan is I took this test called the Omega Quant. I'm not affiliated with them, but I like it because it's an easy way. It's an at-home test. It's a hundred bucks. I recommend it to all my friends. You get a test at home and you can prick your finger and it'll send it back in, and they'll tell you your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. And my ratio was really inverted because I was eating a very processed uh, vegan diet.
1: Yeah, you know, and certainly I respect that there are people who are vegan, uh, vegetarian for their spiritual beliefs, uh, and they're deeply committed to them. Um, And if you're doing that for your spiritual beliefs, um, then we we need to do some testing so I can detect what metabolic abnormalities we have Uh, and we can address them. I also point out that when you lean into all this processed vegan food and you lean into all this uh, soy-based products, you are actually contributing to deforestation uh, because uh, uh, Brazil, a lot of the drive to deforest Brazil is to grow soybeans. If instead of trying to grow soybeans on marginal lands, we were pasturing that, Uh, as part of regenerative farming, uh, we would have less deforestation uh, and you'd have a healthier uh, production of uh, protein.
0: So you talked about wheat, soy, corn. We talked about seed oils. Let's talk about another one. What is the role of sugar when it comes to our mitochondrial health? Why do so many people talk about sugar and mitochondria and some of the damaging impacts that sugar can have?
1: So, um... Our mitochondria can burn sugar, they can burn amino acids, uh, they can burn fats. Uh, And people have um, been mistaken to think that when I'm exhausted, I'm going to take sugar or caffeine to deal with that uh, fatigue. Uh, And uh, when we take a lot of sugar, it stimulates our dopamine, we get a a lot of pleasure, I get a hit, uh, taking processed foods, I'm going to get a lot of... um, uh, stimulants that are added to the food to create that craving and the withdrawal. However, uh, that drives insulin resistance. Uh, that drives uh, diabetes. Uh, and that in the end, uh, that's going to create more problems uh, with my mitochondria. I'll be more likely to have uh, small, less effective uh, mitochondria. If I have... Uh, Less uh, insulin resistance, so more insulin sensitivity because I have a lower glycemic index diet. uh, So I'm eating more protein, uh, more fat. Uh, I'm more likely to have large, robust, healthier uh, mitochondria.
0: So one of the things I mentioned earlier is that it's not just diet that can both help and harm mitochondria. It's also our lifestyle factors. For you, you say, and we're going to break down your journey in a second for those that aren't familiar, or haven't heard our first two episodes, but you say like fixing your mitochondria and when you stopped poisoning them was central to you getting better. So talk to us more about those other factors separate from food that both help and hurt mitochondria.
1: You know, probably for many uh, of the listeners, you are poisoning your mitochondria. You don't know that, but you probably are. Uh, I had spent uh, far too many years poisoning my mitochondria. Uh, First, I I grew up on a farm, uh, and we used pesticides, herbicides, as part of the agricultural chemicals. Um, And so all of those pesticides, insecticides, are uh, toxic to mitochondria. Uh, in addition, the uh, we had our own private well, uh, and eighty percent of the farm wells, private wells in Iowa, are contaminated with atrazine, which is a pesticide that has been banned for uh, decades uh, in Europe because of its toxic effects on mitochondria. So, little kid, I'm uh, accidentally uh, damaging my mitochondria from from the beginning. Um, then. I had to take a, a bunch of antibiotics very early in life uh, because of uh, tonsillitis in strep throat. Really great. I never had to have valvular heart disease, so I'm thrilled I got those antibiotics. But recurrent antibiotics, remember I said earlier, are mitochondria, are ancient bacteria. So antibiotics, particularly if you have to take them long term, can be stressful for your mitochondria. Then uh, the next problem uh, that I had is... I'm an artist. So I started oil painting uh, when I was uh, in uh, high school. Uh, And I have a degree in uh, oil painting and also did metallurgy. So now I'm exposed to mercury, lead, cadmium. uh, And I had years of eating lots and lots of rice, so let's throw in arsenic. Uh, And so uh, all of those things poison the enzymes uh, that my mitochondria use. So, it, you know, that's a problem. Uh, and uh, I got into medical school. Uh, I am thrilled, thrilled uh, to be doing gross anatomy, uh, and which is, you know, something every artist you know, longs to do is get to go dissect cadavers. So I go back to the lab, unwrap the cadavers, and I have these beautiful notebooks of, of uh, uh, all those cadaver drawings that I did. So I probably have three to four times the amount of formaldehyde exposure uh, of my classmates because I was so thrilled to be doing all these drawings, which again was stressful for my mitochondria.
0: You really went for the whole toxic soup, huh? You were trying to see uh, yeah, how many points I, you could score up in that whole category.
1: Uh, and so, in my undergraduate years, you know, I, I was had lots of energy. Um, I was an athlete. I did uh, full contact. Uh, taekwondo. Uh, I competed nationally uh, uh, in 1978 before entering medical school. Uh, I was in the Pan American trials, a real kick ass sort of girl. Uh, and then um, yeah, during medical school, I started having less and less energy. I, I could not be quite as strong. Uh, and I think it was the effect of all of that damage that had been accumulating on my mitochondria.
0: And can I pause you for just a moment? what are these different toxins actually doing? Do they make it harder for the mitochondria to do their job? Do they literally interact with the mitochondria and then the mitochondria that are exposed to them yeah, die yeah. off? Like what are the series of things that are, that are happening? Sure.
1: So these various compounds, um, uh, minerals, are really important cofactors for the enzymes that are used
0: in the Krebs cycle. And and could you break down the Krebs cycle because for a lot of people that'll be that'll be new. What what happens in the Krebs okay. cycle?
1: so uh, when we uh, in the cell, uh, we can take glucose and make ATP. If you do it in the cytoplasm, we're we're not very good at that, uh, but but you can, uh, and you do it without oxygen. You can make two ATP. Uh, uh, if you do it in the cytoplasm.
0: Which is central for energy and powering everything in our body.
1: And ATP is adenosine triphosphate. Uh, Our cells will use that ATP to drive all the other biochemical reactions that happen in life. Uh, Because in order for the chemical reactions to happen in life, there's usually an enzyme uh, that's facilitated by a vitamin and a mineral cofactor. And then you need to nudge it a little bit you use the ATP to give it that nudge so the, the reaction can happen. And, and we use that to uh, basically to make the stuff that we have to make to stay alive. In uh, life is really a series of self-controlled uh, chemical reactions that allow us to, to grow and ultimately to reproduce. Beautiful. Very very important stuff. Then, uh, so in the cytoplasm, uh, you can take a glucose molecule, no oxygen, I can make two ATP. If I have oxygen and I can put um, the glucose uh, 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 through the Krebs cycle through a series of steps that will uh, be facilitated by the enzymes that exist in the mitochondria that are in the cell membranes of the mitochondria, I then we can get up to 38 ATP per glucose molecule. So there's a big difference between two and 38. For that to happen, you need to have uh, uh, lots of B vitamins, you need uh, zinc, uh, magnesium. Uh, We can uh, also uh, facilitate this with the creatine, carnitine, uh, coenzyme Q, uh, uh, riboflavin, uh, niacin, Uh, uh, These are uh, uh, molecules that are important to either making the enzymes in that pathway or shuttling in uh, the fat or the glucose or the amino acid into the mitochondria. Where these uh, heavy metals, lead, mercury, cadmium, arsenic, they compete with the the nutritional minerals And so the zinc and magnesium can't do their job uh, and the heavy metals are displacing them.
0: And in your instance, you were getting some exposed to those, you know, you were saying like oil painting and being in medical school, but people don't have to be an artist or be a doctor to do that. It's often that many of those things are found in even a lot of the commercial cosmetics. Like if you're not buying from cleaner brands or if you're using a lot of fragrances or if you're being exposed to some of the things that you mentioned before even just a high dosage of pesticides regularly that you're being exposed to in your diet or eating foods that have a large concentration of pesticides. So that is one of the ways that most people that are listening today are gonna be exposed.
1: Yeah, most of you are, are being exposed um, because it's in our water, uh, it's in our food supply. Uh, yeah, yeah, Depending on the, where you're getting your food, uh, it will be in the food supply uh, and in the water. Um, Mercury is a byproduct of uh, burning coal. Uh, and, you know, the coal plants that are being burned in China get into the air, come down in the rain uh, uh, across the Pacific and across the United States. So depending on the foods that you're eating, uh, you will be at risk of uh, some heavy metals. And our... our. Um, Various regulations on controlling um, the effluents that go into our into our air, into our water. Uh, those regulations fluctuate according to uh, uh, government policy. Uh, and more recently, uh, some of these regulations uh, uh, have been uh, relaxed. Uh, and so, I, I know in Iowa, the quality of the water has sharply uh, reduced uh, in the last twenty years. I uh, uh, and the I mean, it's very, very concerning. Uh, We can also look at the number of wildflowers, uh, the uh, wildflowers, and the quality uh, of air uh, globally uh, in here in the United States has uh, been impacted by the amount of uh, wildfires that are occurring.
0: And just the deteriorating infrastructure, you know, piping and other things that have had decades of usage and have not been replaced. And so you have lead you know, lead uh, exposure that's coming because the pipings have been- you Yeah, know, kind it, it's, of not,
1: like... it's not just Flint. Yeah. You know, we're aware of, painfully aware of Flint, uh, but the lead in the water system is much larger than Flint.
0: Which is why, like one of the best things that somebody could do today is just get like a good quality water filter at home, like, yeah. a, like a reverse osmosis or something like that. You
1: know, that. yeah. and I talked to my patients that we can start with just uh, a pitcher, Uh, That has a filtration system uh, that you uh, pour your water through in the pitcher. That's uh, very inexpensive. You can put it on your tap. Um, You can get it under the sink with a reverse osmosis. Uh, There are also whole house water filtration systems.
0: But I think everyone uh, should be having filtered water. I had a kind of a mentor figure in my life many years ago who uh, had this great phrase. He said, either you get a filter or you become the filter. And I think that's mm. important for people to realize is that it's going to get filtered one way or another, but you don't want it to be your body filtering it out. You might as well have something else, like a good quality water filter.
1: And let me point out, Drew, that we also breathe a lot of air. And now that we have um, been tuned in to make our homes tighter, so they're more energy efficient, uh, we're more likely to have poor air quality indoors uh, because of the synthetic compounds that are used in manufacturing uh, uh, for our our homes, uh, for our offices, uh, because of the synthetic uh, carpets, the uh, synthetic uh, building materials.
0: Mm. It's a problem. All those parts per million get into the air, we breathe them in, it affects cognition, it affects our mitochondrial health, it gunks up our lungs.
1: As you said, um, it's gonna get filtered. Uh, is um, Are you going to be the filter or are we going to filter first? And so, again, I, I, I talk to my patients that, again, this depends on your circumstances. You can get filters for that are good for your room or for your apartment or if you own your own home and you have a heating air conditioning unit, you can get a filtration system that you can put on your uh, heating air conditioning unit. Uh, that's what I've done. Uh, I have the filter uh, replaced uh, twice a year. Uh, and you know, it's always very impressive, uh, the amount of stuff that gets filtered out, that the filter took out as opposed to my
0: lungs. It's so true. Even in the studio, there was a period of time when we were first moving in, we hadn't transported over our filters from our old studio. And I remember recording with the guest and I just felt, I, I just felt like it was harder, I, I just felt Felt like I wasn't as sharp. I felt like I wasn't fully there. And I wasn't even thinking it was the filter. Then the next week we finally brought over the filters and we got them, changed them out, turned them back on. We used something called Air Doctor. We're a big fan of it. And that they, that day, again, could be placebo, could be this. There's a lot of things and factors that are there, but that's my N of one experience. We turned on the filters and it's a pretty high quality one. Not to mention the fact that we just had built this studio out. So there's a lot of volatile compounds in the air, even though we use low VOC paint, even though we use natural rugs and other stuff. Anytime you buy something new, there's always going to be waste product that's generated off-gassing. in the air. absolutely. Off-gassing, as you had mentioned. And so a filter has been super beneficial in that. So let's zoom out a little bit more. You were just talking about not poisoning our mitochondria. Mm. And we're going to come to your story. I keep on teasing it. We're going to come to your story in a second. Were there other things, lifestyle factors, separate from environmental toxins and that? Mm. How about exercise, sleep, other things? What did those look like on your journey while you were headed towards um, your body literally breaking down and you ultimately ending up in a wheelchair?
1: So, you know, early in my life, yeah, I'm a farm kid, we, uh, plenty of exercise, um, uh, lots of sun, lots of vitamin D, go off to college, I'm not, I'm not outside, um, but I, I need to exercise. Um, so I get into long distance running, uh, I get into martial arts. So uh, that exercise had a fair amount of high intensity interval workout, uh, which is really great for your mitochondria. Uh, if you do a high intensity interval workout, you'll stimulate your mitochondria to uh, consolidate themselves, so they're a bit
0: larger. You'll is that is that called mitochondrial uncoupling? Is that that process? Well,
1: uh, mitochondrial fu- uh,
0: fusion. Fusion. Okay, got it. Uh,
1: and then they will also you'll make more of them, so they're they're bigger, stronger, healthier. Uh, that is really good.
0: And that's kind of like the beneficial stress that's there. It's like the beneficial hey, stress. We need to rise to the occasion. And you know what? These mitochondria are not as strong because maybe they've been damaged or they haven't been taken care of. So we just need to recycle them and then- We'll make, we'll we'll, we'll clean out the old ones. We will uh, repack them into
1: bigger, uh, larger, and then we'll make more of them. So mm. it is great. But if you do it a little too hard, then that can become uh, a problem. Uh, and so again, I can sort of think about um, I, you know, I, I like to push myself, and I probably push myself uh, much too hard. I was running 85 to 100 miles a week. Wow. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, and I was doing that um, my first year of medical school. And then I couldn't do it my second year of medical school. In retrospect, you know, I think I did, you know, I did not give myself recovery time. Uh, and so HIT is really good. Um, you know, high intensity interval training is great, but you have to be careful that you're giving yourself sufficient recovery time. If you do not, you will begin to uh, break down your mitochondria, uh, and uh, they won't be big, fat, and so plentiful, uh, and you'll you know, begin to feel like, I'm losing ground, losing ground, losing ground.
0: They'll be spread too thin.
1: Uh, literally.
0: Yes, wow. absolutely. Fa- amazing. Again, just the idea. You know, the, the next question that I want to ask you goes right into this, which is that why is it that modern medicine and going back to your days of learning about mitochondria back in medical school, how is it that we so overlook the importance that mitochondria play with health?
1: You know, so biochemistry, we, we memorize all those equations, um, uh, cellular physiology, We memorize all of that stuff. Uh, What's sort of interesting, we never got taught this really basic concept. The food we eat becomes the cells we're gonna have and the body we're gonna have. So if you want a high-quality cell and a high-quality body, you really have to have high-quality inputs. Shocking. now. You know, I've mentioned that I'm a farm kid. We certainly understood if you wanted to have a high-quality championship cow or pig or horse, you took very uh, much interest into making sure you had high-quality rations. It is shocking that there was no nothing. We were taught nothing about nutrition.
0: It's almost like that phrase, you know. I don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't a fish, right? It probably <laughs> wasn't a fish. It was so obvious and in front of us, but it was overlooked, probably and and, and majorly connected to the idea of modernity, right? Uh, and, yeah. and modern progress and the idea of, as you mentioned, after the big world wars, trying to feed people and the depression and just thinking it's all about calories in and calories out. And this is the modernization, and we've figured it out, we've hacked it as humanity.
1: And uh, with World War I and then World War II, we saw how powerful antibiotics were at taking people who were on the cusp of death from their overwhelming infection, and we could give them just a little bit of penicillin, a little bit of a sulfa antibiotic, and kill the microorganisms, and the person would be restored to health. Uh, and so we thought that these other chronic disease states would we, find a magic drug that was just as powerful, Uh, and the NIH, the National Institutes for Health, was very interested in understanding physiology, uh, and um, that by understanding physiology and molecular pathways, we would be able to design these perfect drugs that would fix all of our chronic disease states.
0: We did it before with antibiotics, we're gonna do it again for every next thing that comes. For every
1: other chronic disease, Uh, and at that same time, after um, World War II, there's this dramatic uh, increase in the rates of non-infectious chronic disease states these these are the non-communicable diseases so there's a 400% increase so fourfold increase in the rates of allergy and asthma type 1 diabetes inflammatory bowel disease rheumatoid arthritis multiple sclerosis uh, autism uh I I don't know what the rates are for anxiety, uh depression, mental health. Uh, I, I believe that's even fast you know, steeper than the fourfold uh that we see for these other autoimmune diseases.
0: It's uh truly a toxic soup that all added up together probably came from good intentions and then was kept alive through just profiteering, right? Like yeah. profit motives, not a grand conspiracy. Most things that seem like a grand conspiracy can be simply chalked up. There's actually a, a quote by uh Naval Ravikant. He's like, most things that we look at that are a big conspiracy to suppress the population or do this or that are really just two things. Number one, a general sense of incompetence, like by the system often, Correct. right? The system just wasn't paying attention to it. And the second one is profit. Who doesn't like to make money and they're not thinking that this is contributing to poor health, so they keep that cycle going in the case of you know these big processed foods companies.
1: Well, the food tastes good. you know, And um, the food
0: tastes good too, that's an important it, point. It tastes good,
1: uh, it's cheap. Uh, the, the big food, which uh, by the way, uh, big tobacco, Uh, bought up Big Food, uh, and they learned that we will hire the best PhD food scientists, and we will pay them great money to help design chemicals that that, that will be generally regarded as safe, that we could add to the food to make the food even tastier, so the consumer will buy more of that, and that the consumer will feel uncomfortable if they're not consuming that food so that they will crave it. And then they discover that, you know, if we begin marketing to the children, we could get the children to ask their parents to get more of these food items. And then when the children grow up to be adults, they will perpetuate consuming these foods. So we now have, uh, you know, children. If you look at the... uh, Fast food uh, consumption in the United States. On any given day, 37% of us are having fast food. And the younger you are, the more fast food you're having. It's 50% if you're under the age of 24. And you're likely to have all of your meals be fast food. If you do cook at home, you're probably eating a boxed meal that's already been prepared by someone else. You just open it up, put it in a pan, and warm it up. You aren't, you, aren't our, our, our children... And many of our young adults, and even many of our old adults, have forgotten how to meal plan, how to shop, how to cook using ingredients. If they cook, they're simply opening a jar or a box uh, of processed food that someone else has already made.
0: It's a a challenging problem, and it doesn't seem like it's getting any better. Uh, A few years ago was the first year that the amount of money spending eating out at, uh, restaurants in America exceeded the amount of money being spent at grocery stores. And, you know, I get it. Even people who are pretty healthy, there's a push for convenience. There's mm-hmm. more that we want to do. People are busy with their families. Child care is an issue here in America. And, you know, women are in the workforce and the brunt of what typically fell on for food production in the household was on women. So everybody wants to live their lives. Everybody wants to self-actuate. And even if you're healthy, you want to go towards more convenience things. And I'm not exactly sure what the solution is. We were talking, we were at an event this past weekend Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of conversations around that hosted by our good friend, Casey Means. Um, Maybe towards the end of the interview, I'd like to talk about, you know, what are some big picture magic wand stuff that we could do Mm -hmm. to move the needle forward. But coming back to the topic of mitochondria, I want to go to your story now. And we've set the stage a little bit by saying that understanding the role of mitochondria was central in your healing Mm -hmm. process. I showed uh, an image in the beginning. And if you're listening on podcasts, you can find in the show notes, this is a before and after photo, one of you at your worst where you were wheelchair bound. And then basically a year and a half later on where you're riding a bicycle, and you've been given this diagnosis of progressive MS and had been terrible for years and finally there was a little glimmer of of hope we're going to tell that story out a little bit and some of what you went through but a big part of that was understanding the importance of mitochondria and by the way it's not just for ms and it's not just for autoimmune conditions mitochondria is central for so many disease states that are out there regardless of what people are suffering from even if it's improving your focus improving your day-to-day energy improving your gut health mitochondria is so key in that so now Take us back to the story that you were sharing. You were in med school. You were doing all the dissections and formaldehyde. Yeah. When did you first start to notice your earliest symptoms that came from even before you noticed the diagnosis?
1: You know, the first thing I could tell is that my athletic performance was was slacking off. And I'm like, really annoyed with myself. So I push harder and I'm losing ground I, and I cannot... <clears throat> fight as intensively. So the first thing that falls uh, is my athletic performance. And then I go off to clinicals. And now I, I can't run 100 miles or even attempt to run 100 miles because I'm doing clinicals. Uh, and uh, I'm exhausted. But of course, everybody should be exhausted doing clinicals because at that point, you know, it was 80 plus hours uh, of work uh, every, every week. Uh, and then I start having twinges of discomfort at my temple. Uh, and they last uh, a few days. Uh, they were more likely to happen uh, if I'd been under severe stress, uh, not enough sleep. Uh, then uh, the following year, I had, it wasn't just twinges of discomfort. It was electrical. Uh, and just a, a quick uh, jolt of pain. Uh, and I could tell that it would be troublesome for uh, random jolts that would be there for a day or two. Nothing had any uh, ability to cut the, uh, or turn off the discomfort. Finished medical school, I go off to residency, which is longer hours uh, and uh, more stress uh, and uh, these discomforts are more frequent, uh, more severe, and definitely when they come, uh, it's uh, uh, electrical, uh, quite unpleasant, uh, but of course, uh, as a resident intern, you're not know, gonna take time off, you just, you know, uh, put up with it, it take a lot of concentration to to not grimace, not grunt, and not let anyone appreciate that actually I was uh, in a whole lot of pain. Hmm. Uh, I finished residency um, I uh, in my first year of, uh, of private practice. Uh, a romantic relationship of five years breaks up. Uh, that's pretty tough. Um, uh, so I'm uh, depressed and uh, uh, stressed about that. I, I will also say, Drew, that your first year of private practice is often stressful because now you're dealing with the reality of private practice, which is quite different than training, quite different than what you expected. And you're like, oh my God, I spent eight years learning how to do this. I'm in this much debt to do this. Like, oh my God, what have I done? (laughs) So it's very common for the first year physician to go through depression and have to work through
0: the fact that private practice is not what you anticipated. And just to clarify that, you know, I have a lot of doctors in my family and things like that. Is that the idea that, hey, I really signed up to be a doctor to make a difference and to help people, and you had this vision, and now in private practice, you feel like you're just prescribing medicine?
1: Well, um, it, it, you're, you don't have the uh, kind of relationship that you thought you were going to have.
0: Um, uh, because it, of time constraints? Because of time constraints. Okay, so you get like on average, like six minutes, eight minutes with your patient.
1: Uh, and the amount of paperwork, uh, the amount of support you might have or not have, uh, it is... You're you're much more like a factory worker than you realized. Mm. Like oh my god, isn't, that shocking?
0: I have isn't emph- that shocking? And I have empathy for doctors because they went into this, uh, they went into this uh, occupation to want to help people, but now they feel like they're part of this factory, as you mentioned. You're,
1: you're sort of like a, a factory. Uh, and uh, then the next thing that happens, uh, you know, when I'm back to trying to exercise. I, and so I've I've discovered rollerblading, roller skiing, a cross-country skiing, uh, and uh, so it's it's August, it's after work. I'm going to go out and rollerblade, uh, and I'll do a 10-mile rollerblade out, turn around, 10 miles home. And while I'm out, I don't, you know, probably four or five miles, um, I realize that I'm blind in my left eye. Well, that's sort of uh, upsetting. Um, and I'm Scary. Like, <laughs> oh, this is a problem. Uh, so I and I decide that I, I should not rollerblade home. So I take off my roller skis, uh, put them over my shoulder, and I walk home. It I don't I don't remember how long it took me, but you know it, it took me quite a while. By the time I got home, I could see again. So I do a, a neuro exam on myself, and everything checks out okay. And now I'm thinking, well, do I go in to see the emergency room now? That's going to be silly. So I, I go in the next day uh, to see a neurologist I, and uh, checks out uh, everything looks normal. He sends me to eye, everything looks normal. Uh, I get an echocardiogram, I get an MRI, I get a angiogram of my uh, retinal uh, blood vessels. And they decide I have a autonomic dysfunction of the retinal blood flow. Uh, and so I should not race in hot weather. And they really didn't know, Uh, and they did not connect it to my episodes of face pain. Mm. And you know, in retrospect, uh, between those two, you could have made the diagnosis of MS at that point. But I'm hugely, hugely grateful they did not, because I probably would not have had my kids. Mm. Um, So I, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled they didn't put it together. I did figure out that if I raced um, or I took a hot tub or a sauna, uh, I could not see very well. And so I knew like, okay, I I can't race so hard anymore and uh, I'll I'll have to have more moderate exercise. And I went ahead and I had my son. I was having dinner with a colleague uh, and I had mentioned the fact that the color in my left eye was a little different than the color in my right eye. And she says, Terry, you're gonna have MS someday. And my father died the next morning. Wow. So I forgot that comment, because you know I was uh, consumed by the unexpected death of my father. Um, and then a couple years later, I had my daughter. And um, after my daughter was born, I, I my face pains definitely picked up. They were getting to be more frequent, more severe. Um, I was on gabapentin every day. Um, I was now uh, sent to the pain clinic. Um, I was uh, uh, sent to the Mayo Clinic because the, this was getting to be more and more troublesome. Uh, and so what would happen uh, is that I would uh, get higher doses of solumedrol. Pardon me. I would get higher doses of gabapentin. visits to the pain clinic when things turned on. And then I was on maximum dose of daily gabapentin.
0: And still at this time, no diagnosis.
1: No diagnosis other than, you know, you have this trigeminal neuralgia. Right. uh, And uh, this autonomic dysfunction of the blood flow to my retina. So now 13 years after my episode of dim vision, I developed weakness of my left leg. And uh, that... uh, is when I go see the neurologist and he says, Terry, this could be bad or really, really bad. And so I'm as I'm going through the workup for the next, uh, it takes three weeks to uh, get the MRIs and the spinal taps and all the blood work and a variety of things that had to happen. You know, I'm thinking about my, at that point, 20 years of worsening face pains. And I'm like, okay, I've got a progressive disease. Uh, and I also think about my father who had um mononeuritis multiplex, which is a progressive autoimmune disease affecting the peripheral nerves, You'd mm-hmm. had 20 years, actually 27 years, of progressively horrific pain. And so I'm thinking, okay, my pain is going to eventually turn on permanently like my dad's, and this is going to be really terrible. And he had uh, motor weakness uh, in the end as well. So I'm thinking like man, I don't want 27 more years of, of terrible life that I saw my dad go through. So I want this to be something really terrible that's going to kill me quickly uh, because I don't want to be disabled. Um, but three weeks later I hear multiple sclerosis. My neurologist is very optimistic uh, that things will go well. Um, and we. I start on Copaxone. I continue to decline uh, within three years. So I'm, I'm 48. Now I, I, I'm I told I have secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. I take mitoxantrone, which is a form of chemotherapy.
0: Does not help. Because at the time, if I could just interject, the thinking is that okay, your immune system is attacking your own body. Mm-hmm. How do we get your immune system to quiet down? Well, let's let's basically you know just get everything to quiet down. So that was the approach.
1: Right. Right. You and it was very potent my you know i had uh, neutropenia quite severe as a result of those um uh and so you know being the farm cath okay i'm getting a lot a lot of bang for the buck here um but you know i, I did not uh, improve i continued to go downhill then they said well we'll put you on tizatry cuz tizatry reduces the rate of relapse by 68%. It, it was the wonder drug. People were very excited. I was thrilled to be taking it. It did not help.
0: And how does that work? What's the mechanism of that drug? What were they thinking at the time that this drug would be able to do for you in helping you with the relapse?
1: Well, you know, it, it's a much more specific drug at a specific uh, pathway uh, in the immune pathway. And it is, it's very effective. It's considered one of the most effective drugs at turning off relapses, turning off the uh, inflammatory component. However, now, so it, it did not work. That did not help. Uh, they put they took me off that, put me on cell uh, I'm in the tilt reclining wheelchair. My face pain's getting worse. And I'm like, you know what? I gotta be doing all that I can. I'm gonna go back to reading the basic science. And I, at first, I'm looking for other off-label drug studies, then I finally have the big aha, like, I should be looking for things that I could access. So I'm going to start looking for supplements. And I start reading for um, supplement articles, and I'm looking at neurodegeneration because I'm thinking, Drew, I've had two relapses in my entire life. Otherwise, it's been this slow, relentless decline and they've already told me that I'm in the progressive phase. This is not a inflammation problem. This is a neurodegeneration problem. This is a mitochondria problem. Mm. Now at that time, no one's writing about mitochondria and MS, but I'm, I'm convinced it is a mitochondria problem. So I'm reading articles about the animal models for Parkinson's, for Alzheimer's, for cognitive decline, for ALS, for Huntington's, and I'm reading basic science about mitochondria. I'm going back, you know, to my biochem textbook. Like, okay, so what are all what what are the enzymes? What are the cofactors? What are the steps? And so I start taking uh, vitamins, um, creatine, carnitine, uh, lipoic acid, Coenzyme Q, and yeah, I do that for six months, and then the skeptic rears her head and says, you're wasting your money.
0: Your own internal skeptic, your own yeah, internal my, voice. Yeah, my
1: internal skeptic um, says, you're wasting your money. Uh, and so I, I stopped them. Uh, and the next day you know, I go to work, uh, no big deal. But on, after 36 hours, it was really hard to get out of bed. Now now, mind you, I am in a tilt reclined wheelchair. Um, I have a zero gravity chair at work where I can lean back with my knees higher than my nose. I'm staffing residents. So I, my mind's still clear. Uh, and I'm very fortunate that I'm, you know, at the university uh, and at the VA. Um, but, you know, I, I just really couldn't get up out of bed to go to work, so I call in sick. And then after after 72 hours, uh, Jackie comes in and says, you know, honey, I think I ought gotta try those vitamins again. So I, I take them and the next morning I'm back to my usual level uh, of fatigue. I can get up and I can go to work. And then I come back and I'm like, wow, that was really interesting.
0: You had that contrast, because it sounds like from the outside and correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't really even notice how much better you were getting because it was slow. It was slow. It was Mm -hmm. slow, but you also weren't getting worse, but sometimes we don't know what we have until we lose it.
1: Correct. And i tell i tell that story to my patients a lot that um i couldn't tell that it was helping me until i stopped mm. and it took me 36 hours to see the difference but at 36 hours man I, I i really could not function now and mind you i'm not functioning great normally but i was functioning way worse than normal for me so just just off of these vitamins which again these vitamins. are
0: playing a pivotal role in a whole host of things, but really supporting the mitochondria. Supporting the mitochondria. So I'm like, man, I gotta try
1: that again. So Jack and I agree that well, I, I can try it again. I'll wait two weeks. I stop the supplements. Again, it takes 36 hours to to not be able to function very well. I wait 72 hours before I, I start my supplements again. And the next morning I can I'm back to my usual level of fatigue. So I am so excited. Like, oh, my! you know, I'm I'm figuring something out. And I'm figuring stuff out that my neurologist doesn't know, that my primary care doc doesn't know. By this time, I'm on the Institutional Review Board, uh, which means that I'm part of the committee that reviews research at the university. So I tell them, give me all the studies that have to do with the brain. I wanna review those studies. So I'm getting more and more comfortable reading uh, uh, clinical protocols, and reading uh, the research. And now I'm committed, you know, every week, I'm going to go looking for an article uh, to read about the mitochondria, about neurodegeneration. Uh, And, you know, I'm not a neurologist. I'm not, I don't have a PhD. So this is hard, hard work for me, but I am so excited.
0: But maybe if you did... If you were a neurologist or if you did have a phd you wouldn't necessarily even looked in that direction in the first place you I had have, the outsider I, right, insider right, you know, right. approach.
1: I, I would never have put this together if i'd been a phd because i know you wouldn't do this if i was a neurologist i would know you wouldn't do this
0: yeah it's not going to work you're going down a rabbit hole that's not going to lead anywhere now just contextualize us at this time is the primary thing that you're doing is the inclusion of these vitamins are there and of course you can't move as much because your movement is not you know there How'd you made any changes to your diet at this point in time?
1: Well, yeah, so I had been a vegetarian, low-fat since, vegetarian uh, since uh, uh, undergraduate days, low-fat since medical school. Uh, And so very low-fat, lots of beans, rice, uh, uh, vegetables. Uh, In 2002, shortly after my diagnosis, my neurology team uh, introduced me to the work of Lauren Cordain. And after a lot of prayer and meditation, I went back to eating meat. Mm. The following year, I needed the short-recline wheelchair. So I'd been a vegetarian—no legumes, no dairy—for um, uh, four years. I was continuing to get worse. I'd stayed with being a, uh, a meat eater because I figured, you know, it's taken me twenty-four years to get wrecked my brain and my spinal cord. Who knows how long it takes to repair everything? Maybe seven to ten years. So I was like, okay, I don't know, I, uh, but the science seems reasonable. So I stayed with uh, my Paleolithic diet. And by the way, it, I was following the AIP version of that. Um,
0: AIP is?
1: Uh, the autoimmune. Uh, autoimmune protocol. paleo diet. Yeah. yeah got it. Uh, okay. So, you know, no grain, no legumes, uh, no dairy, meat and vegetables. Uh, and, Then I uh, am reading. I'm slowly adding more vitamins. Um, I just, in 2007, my chief of staff calls me in and tells me he's going to assign me to the traumatic brain injury clinic. Uh, And then he describes the job that don't be residents. I'll be examining the patients directly uh, as part of a multidisciplinary team. I go home and tell Jackie and she goes, there's no way you can do that job. Because you know, physically, I, and I knew she was right. I said, "Well, you know, come January, I'll either I'll go to a clinic and I can do the job, or I can't." Uh, and uh, that was difficult because I was like, "Okay, I'm probably going to have to finally apply for disability." Then uh, I think it was the following week, maybe two weeks later, I uh, had the study using electrical stimulation of muscles in a spinal cord injury study, and I thought that looked really interesting. So. I told Jackie I wanted to buy a device. She said, no, <laughs> you're not doing that, but you can talk to your physical therapist. Maybe he'll do it for you. So I called my physical therapist uh, and convinced him. He said that, yes, he is with his, with his athletes all the time. He could grow bigger muscles, but he didn't know if my brain could talk to those bigger muscles, and I might be making things worse. But we, he did agree to give me a test session he said, it's going to hurt a lot and you have a lot of issues with pain. Um, so we did the test session. It did hurt a lot, but when it was over, I felt great. Mm. I felt the uh, most joyful that I'd felt in a very long time.
0: And this is like e e-STEM device, right? This, so the, this
1: is like a TENS device. The The frequencies is a little bit different. You put them over the motor nerves. Uh, yeah, You get elect- electricity, which feels like bugs crawling on your skin at first then it becomes more intense, then you feel the muscle spasm, Uh, and then while the muscle is contracting, you do a volitional contraction on top of it. And uh, he would come in, uh, want to get as much contraction as I could tolerate. And then because uh, you're releasing endorphins, it gets more comfortable, every few minutes he'd want to turn the current up and make it very uncomfortable again. So uh, we did 10 minutes uh, on my back, uh, and then ten minutes on each quad, so I had about thirty minutes of exercise.
0: And there's modern day versions of these devices. You know, people a lot of chiropractors use them. And just just connecting the dots for our audience is the idea that by stimulating a particular region of the muscles and having that rapid contraction, you're sort of resetting up the nerves to be able to. To, wow. to move that area co- correctly? You
1: know, what happens, so we'll look at my muscles. My muscles had been doing hardly any work right. for a long time. So those poor mitochondria were very weak. Uh, the muscles themselves would have looked uh, very ill under the microscope, because muscles need to work. Mitochondria need to do the work. And by forcing them to do work through with electricity, we were revitalizing the mitochondria. We were revitalizing that muscle cell. And we also know that we were releasing nerve growth factors locally in the muscles, and we're releasing nerve growth factors in my brain, which is why, and a lot of endorphins in my brain, which is why I felt euphoria. I felt had such a great mood at the end of the E-stem. Like, oh my goodness, it was striking. The, the cognitive effects that I had from e the mood effects I had from e were compelling, incredibly compelling. Uh, so at, at uh, the first couple weeks I would go back in and I would get half an hour of e uh, three times a week. Then Dave uh, found uh, a home-going device, a prescription device, it had me start doing the e at home and taught me how to use the device. Now at, at that point, my exercise, which i had been very faithful to do every day, you know, since I was an undergraduate, but with the MS diagnosis, my exercise kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. At that point, I had a, a little tiny 10-minute program that I could do. If I did more than 10 minutes, I couldn't function and go to work. So we start uh, doing 10 minutes of exercise, and I'm doing e while I'm doing my little workout. And about the same time, I discovered this organization, the Institute for Functional Medicine. And they have a course on neuroprotection. And, you know, it's uh, Catherine Wilner, uh, Jay Lombard. They, they're both board-certified neurologists, uh, well-trained, uh, I believe Jay uh, trained at Harvard. And so I ordered the course. Uh, and it's audio-synchronized PowerPoints, a lot of biochemistry, a, a lot of mitochondria. I was so excited and a longer list of supplements. And I'm and I'm like rocking it. Yes. I want to have this big list of supplements for my mitochondria. I and I I'm, I'm doing my uh, E-STEM. Not a lot's happening yet. But you know, I, I and I, I totally accept that I have progressive MS. My whole goal Drew is to keep what function I've got a little bit longer that I can still use my hands, feed myself, that I can still take the few steps around the inside of my house, that I, 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 I don't have to go to assisted living, I, I don't want to become a financial burden, you know. I, I want to keep what little function I've got going for a bit longer.
0: That you could also be there for your partner and for your kids.
1: Yeah, you know, and my kids are still pretty young yet. So um, then I had this interesting aha moment and of course now i'm I sort of am embarrassed about how long it took to have this aha. like okay, so I have this this list of supplements, eighteen uh, that I'm taking, and like what if I redesign my paleo diet and I go look to see where these nutrients are in the food supply and i and instead of just eating to avoid the harmful foods, I'm gonna to eat to eat <clears throat> the right foods so you know, that's more research uh, that I have to do. And I start this new way of eating December 26. Now, for context, at that, at that point, I cannot sit up in a regular chair. You know, I can't go out to restaurants. I can't go to movie theaters. If we go up to Wisconsin, we have to fully recline uh, my seat and have a lot, elastic straps to strap me in. I, and we take a zero-gravity chair uh, that I uh, sit in Uh, at uh, 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 our family's home uh, in Wisconsin. And I'm having brain fog, um, which is why John, and and it's not to criticize John that he told me I was going to have to go to the traumatic brain injury clinic because it was reasonable that was I beginning to have cognitive impairment and that I was going to have to finally quit seeing patients. So I start this new way of eating December 26th. January comes... I got to go to the traumatic brain uh, clinic. And the first two weeks, I just watch. It's like, okay, I should be able to do that. I'm just watching from my tilt-reclined wheelchair. The third week, uh, that Monday, I have to get up and, you know, do the exams, write the notes, sit down, you know, write the note, see the next person, do the exam, write the note. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, well, that wasn't too bad. And that, at the end of the week, you know, Jack's going, you know, that seemed to be okay, Terry. I said, yeah, I, maybe I can do this. At the end of the next week, so now we're five weeks into this, I'm thinking, you know, uh, I have more energy. Um, I think my thinking's clear. And I want to try sitting... I want to try sitting at the table. And so I, I was able to sit up in a regular chair for supper. That was a pretty big deal. Huge deal. Um, and uh, so uh, that's the end of January. Um, in February, uh, my physical therapist says, Terry, you're getting stronger. We're going to advance your exercises. Uh, and so now i'm doing uh you know exercises this morning and afternoon uh, and i think it was probably the end of february i decided to mail a letter uh, so i i have um, my walking sticks in my office and i uh, put a uh, a letter in my coat pocket and i take my walking sticks you know and i walk down the hall uh it's probably uh 40 yards and I mail the letter in the mail slot, and my colleagues are like, "Dr. Walls, you're walking. What? What happened? Um, quite remarkable. I and uh, then in in April, I am uh, going to go meet with my uh, chief of medicine at the university, and uh, this is something you do every two years. Now, now, by this time, I've been walking around the VA hospital without walking sticks, But, you know, going to my boss at the university campus, I'm going to go down a hill, up a hill. Uh, you know, it, it it's maybe a half mile. and like, that's too far. So I'll, I'll take my scooter. And I'd swapped out my Toby Klein wheelchair uh, for a scooter, which I hadn't been using for quite a while. So I, I was like, okay, I, it's too far to walk. I'm going to take my scooter. I get in my scooter, and it dies going up the hill. So I have to disengage the scooter. I push it up the hill. uh, And then at the entrance, uh, they offer to call the patient mobile and ask how long that will take. They said, well, probably about 20 minutes. So, Oh, my God, I'm already late. Uh, I'll just leave my scooter, and I'll keep going. So I get to Dr. Rothman's office. I'm now quite late. The secretary shoes me in. She's berating me for being late. I'm apologizing, explaining that my scooter died. And so Dr. Rothman says, oh, so you had to wait for the patient mobile. I said, no, I pushed it up the hill and I walked over. <laughs> he goes, you you what? <laughs> uh, so I show him my electrical therapy device. I explain what I've done. He tells me that this was uh, the best thing that he's he could have ever hoped for. Mm. Uh, and then he wants me to write a case report. And that's, well, on myself? I said, yeah, um, work with your treating medical team, your physical therapist, but this is what I want you to do. Um, I, and so we got that written up. He then uh, talked with me and said, I want you to do what we call a safety and feasibility study. See if others with progressive MS can implement what you did you hurt anyone? Is it safe? And what's the effect size? And, and again, I said, you know, that's not the kind of research that I do. I do diagnostic error research. I so said, I'll get you the mentors. What, you've do, what you have done is quite remarkable.
0: He, the, he, saw the, he literally saw the magnitude of it because this he, is somebody yeah. who previously had seen you and yeah, knew he, you at your worst.
1: He knew me at my worst. He saw this amazing recovery. He was a rheumatologist, so he knew autoimmune disease very well. And, uh, you know, fortunately, he got me uh, the mentors. Um, we, it took me about a year to write the protocol, very clearly what I had done, uh, what we'd do uh, uh, for the study. Um, I had reached out to uh, Ashton Embry, and his nonprofit gave us a little seed money, the uh, manufacturer of the electrotherapy device that I used, uh, gave us 20 devices that we could use and the supplies. And um, one of my mentors had a PhD student and she w- would use the study as her thesis. And we launched that study. Mm. And um, it was stunning. So we have people with primary and secondary uh, progressive MS. The average level of disabilities between Kane and Walker. They have uh, a severe level of fatigue at baseline, and the, these and they're eating a standard American diet. You know, like one servings, one and a half servings of fruits and vegetables a day, five servings of, of uh, uh, grains uh, and dairy a day. Uh, a lot of fried food, a lot of processed food. We get them to basically adapt the Walls diet very successfully. Begin a meditation program, begin an exercise program, begin doing electrical stimulation of muscles. And we have a remarkable reduction in fatigue severity, remarkable improvement in quality of life. Um, If you're overweight, you lost weight very rapidly. As a matter of fact, I had to do safety reports. I have to do safety reports for all of my studies because people who are overweight lose weight very rapidly. No one to date has ever become underweight. Half of our people had remarkable improvement in their walking function, mm. which, which is remarkable because with, if you have secondary primary progressive MS, you anticipate a 10 to 20% worsening of gait um, every year. Yeah. You
0: don't see people get better. People don't get better. You see them get maybe a little less worse. It slows a little bit, sometimes medication, but you don't see people get better. And the fact that we kept this
1: group of, of 19 who, who finished the study as a group stable is stunning. And that half of them had clinically meaningful improvements in gait. Remarkable.
0: And, and how long of, was that period of time? That they were on the walls protocol, the, well, the 12 diet? Months. 12, 12 months. 12 months. Okay, so it was a year that you were seeing that.
1: This was a year. And so I, I still do uh, clinical trials. I still go around the state recruiting. So I give these little lectures uh, in communities around the state. So I run into our former city participants It is so much fun. So you know <laughs> it's 10 years after the fact uh, I'm it's, it's sort of like at a revival meeting these former participants stand up, they tell the attendees their experience and how our work has transformed their lives. And then they'll say, and you know what if I slip up and I stop doing the diet, my fatigue is back, my walking goes to pot. And so, this is what I'm doing forever.
0: It's a lifestyle now.
1: It is a a lifestyle, it is their life. Um, So, this this 70 year old lady uh, is uh, in the uh, senior band uh, and she goes to the the band uh, and does some dancing. Uh, The other uh, lady that I've I've run into, uh, she is still working part time. She has grandchildren that she plays with and hikes with. She takes her dog on five mile hikes. It, you know, it and it, it is it is it is fun. Like uh, we're at a revival meeting, and they are preaching to the choir. Uh, they're very fun to
0: watch. You, you, through the program, you're literally giving people their lives back. Absolutely. I want to zoom out for just one second. I know you're still telling your story, but just so that we have a container for the audience, you know, you're working with people that have this diagnosis of progressive MS. But this is fast forwarding a little bit. But just so people can follow along. Even if you don't have MS, what you're later finding out is that this protocol that addresses the root issues that are going on with mitochondrial health, gut health, nutrient deficiencies, uh, inflammation, it's not something that was only designed to fix MS. People who have other conditions also saw some pretty radical transformations. Can you list off yeah. some of those ones that are out there?
1: You know, so what, what happened? The VA saw, you know, what, what I was doing. I ultimately got pulled out of the primary care clinic, the traumatic brain injury clinic, to create uh, my own my new clinic, the therapeutic lifestyle clinic. And for that, they said, you can do things the way you want to do them, which was basically the Walls Protocol, although I knew not to call it the Walls Protocol in the VA clinics, um, but... We went to specialty medicine, uh, the pain clinic, and primary care, and I said, give me your most difficult cases who have pain, fatigue, brain fog that you can't help. Uh, We're going to use diet and lifestyle, uh, and just give us your toughest cases. We got a few, had great results. Then we got a few more. Then we had a deluge. Uh, And so I kept having to redesign um, how I ran the clinic because I didn't want people to have to wait. So we went from small group appointments to large group appointments to basically classes. Mm. The kinds of uh, problems that we saw were people who had chronic diseases, usually multiple chronic diseases. They were often disabled, living on food stamps. Uh, They'd be, their chief complaints would most consistently be fatigue, pain, brain fog, and then they would have diabetes, obesity, um, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, Uh, systemic lupus, psoriatic arthritis, uh, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury. So a wide variety of problems. And we treated them basically by fixing their mitochondria. We'd give them a pretty basic supplement cocktail uh, around the mitochondria. We would give them uh, basically the WALS diet. We had a meat-eating version and a vegetarian version for them. We would teach them shopping strategies, meal planning strategies. Uh, and you know, remember these people living on food stamps in rural Iowa, rural Missouri, shopping in small grocery stores in rural the Midwest. Uh, and they're exhausted. And they had tremendous success. Uh, people would come in, their energy is improving, their mood is improving their mental clarity is improving, their, their weight is coming down, their blood pressure is coming down, their blood sugar is coming down. We are simplifying their medications. And I'm giving reports back to primary care, to specialty medicine, to the pain clinic uh, every six months uh, with what we're seeing, what we're doing. Then I'm doing uh, reports to uh, uh, the
0: hospital administrators with what we we're doing and the success we we're having. Now at that time, you know, starting going back to like our three foods that were pretty central because you mentioned that one of the things you did, which really helped you is that you asked yourself, okay, I'm taking all these supplements, but where are these supplements found in in food? food?" And one of the highest concentrations was in things like organ meat, Mm -hmm. which was on our top three list of foods in the beginning, bone broth, fiber, organ meat. Now for these individuals, I can imagine, you know, Individuals that you mentioned, rural Iowa, food stamps on the lower rung of the economic spectrum. Were you including things like organ meat or was Mm -hmm. it like if you can find it, like how did you handle that?
1: You know, in Iowa, uh, there's too many deer. Uh, A lot of communities have uh, forest hunts uh, and will have venison in the lockers. So we talk about uh, going to your local community and seeing uh, if you can get some venison or, or talking to your hunting uh, friends, see if you can get some venison, and we encouraged uh, heart uh, and liver, liver once a week. We talked about uh, getting the bones and uh, and hooves uh, and making bone broth. Uh, we also uh, talked about the importance of fiber. Uh, we would teach people how to make sauerkraut uh, in kimchi, uh, and we would talk a lot about green leafy vegetables. Um, Cabbage onion mushroom family vegetables deeply colored vegetables and I tell them you know the goal is nine cups a day right and they're like surely you' about nine cups a week <laughs> so, no 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 the goal is nine cups a day uh, and um, they would would they would get there
0: and what were you finding that there was their primary source because again shopping and what's available to them? What were some of those, you know, how would they typically get to that nine cups? What were some of those vegetables that were becoming the, the basis of that?
1: Uh, cabbage. Cabbage. Uh, so cabbage is, is plentiful uh,
0: and uh, is fairly inexpensive. And one of your favorite snacks is purple cabbage. Purple I cabbage, I see on Instagram Absolutely. all the time.
1: And uh, the other thing we talk about is how easy it is to grow kale, uh, collards, uh, that uh, if you have access to sunlight and dirt, uh, that these leafy greens... Make all of this so much more affordable. We would talk about foraging. Uh, um, we we live in a rural state. A lot of these people still have their rural uh, roots. Getting them outside to forage. We talk about dandelion greens. You know, quit spraying your yard and eat those dandelion greens. Mm. Uh, one of the things that we would do, uh, Drew, is um, we would. Pass around a dandelion leaf and a kale leaf, and have everyone chew that up, and agree how incredibly bitter that is. Uh, And then we would make uh, cooked greens, Uh, and we'd have to sort out if pork was going to be okay. If if it was, we'd make bacon and greens. If pork was not okay, then we would uh, uh, sauté in in ghee uh, and have a non uh, pork, non bacon based. And then we pass around the greens. And they're like, wow, actually that's pretty tasty. But it, it, it was a big aha moment. If they, you, if they could experience how bitter the food was and how it could become delicious, now it's way easier to think about uh, nine cups of vegetables. And we explain the recipes. Here it's very simple. You take some thick bacon, fry it up to the desired level of doneness. Take out the bacon, chop it up, leave the uh, bacon fat in the skillet, add your chopped greens, stir until it's wilted just a bit. And if it's dandelion greens, it'll maybe be 30 seconds. If it's kale or collards, it might be a minute or two. Add the uh, chopped uh, bacon back in and serve. If it's not delicious, double the bacon and try again. (laughs) And my vets are like, well, actually, that does sound pretty good. I explained that when we took fat away from the vegetables, then the bitterness comes through and you don't want to eat them, your kids don't want to eat them and it's a big fight. If you put the fat back, that masks the bitterness. If they still feels feel just a little bit bitter, add some uh, uh, balsamic vinegar or apple cider vinegar or lime juice, a favorite vinegar, and that'll bring the pH
0: down, that will get rid of the bitterness. And that will make uh, this much more delicious. And as you mentioned, if people don't eat pork and they don't eat bacon, they could easily just do that with a little bit of ghee. Correct. And then put in some chopped vegetables or mushrooms. Or mushrooms like or onions, that. yes. Yeah. And, and so, so we
1: have the vegetarian version of that meal, and we have the uh, pork-based uh, version of that meal.
0: And all of this is, again, you saw such a drastic change for yourself, and you are thinking at the recommendation and really the encouragement and, and the push of your mentors to say, this is rare. How do we help other people? And you're going out there and saying, give me your sickest. You put them on this program, but you're trying to have them do these crucial steps because this isn't about willpower. Food it's is about so willpower. addictive and processed food is so addictive that if it's on willpower alone... Everybody eventually will fall off the bandwagon. This is about, this has to taste and feel good if people are going to keep it up.
1: And it has to be a family intervention. So another thing that we did that was brilliant was uh, patients came with their family. And we explained that this is a family intervention, that when you're eating with a patient, everything that's on the table is food that's good for the patient. When you're eating away from the patient, if you want to eat something else, Fine, eat it, but don't come home and talk about it. And that um, we have the conversation about disease processes, how these things work. We, we pa- pass around the you know really bitter vegetables, so everybody eats the really bitter vegetables. Everybody eats the delicious coach greens. Everybody also eats the delicious green smoothie and you know, sometimes we let people bring in their kids so that children can see that, yes, other kids eat this stuff, and yes, this bitter food can become delicious. That makes
0: all, made all the difference in the world. And about how much fiber are you having people have quantity-wise? So you're saying like uh, nine cups, if you turn that into grams, like what, what would that be?
1: You know, I think rather than talking about a specific gram, let's talk about what we need to see. Yes. I think we have to check the microbiome every single day.
0: And there's the uh, Bristol stool chart, you know, one to seven. Which shows like the composition, we'll link to in the show notes, but it shows the composition of like, what does your poop look like? Yeah. You
1: know, it's it's very helpful. Are you constipated? Do you have diarrhea? It's a very useful research technique to have that numbers one to seven. Patients don't get numbers one to seven, but they do understand the terms, are you pooping rocks? Are you pooping dry prickly logs? Are you pooping smooth logs? Are you pooping snakes? Are you pooping pudding? Or are you pooping tea? <laughs> and we're all sort of giggling. <clears throat> and I say, okay, now the perfect poop is a snake, but if the snake is getting into your pants, it's no longer perfect. I want you to have easily pass bowel movements that you can control. If you're pooping pudding or tea, we have to back off on the fiber. And you need more bone broth and uh, all of your vegetables wouldn't have to be cooked souped and stews. If you're pooping rocks or prickly logs, you need more fiber and you need more raw foods, more fermented foods, and we probably have to think about adding more chia seeds, more resistant starch into your diet. Now this becomes functional, and now people have something that they can track. And uh, people love coming to clinic and talking about their snakes <laughs> uh and uh comparing snakes, uh, or you know, saying that they're uh back to the rocks and they gotta work on uh getting some more
0: fiber in. Mm. Uh, that's a really easy, easy to measure thing because if you think about it, like you see animals in the wild, like when they need to poop, they just poop.
1: They don't is, need to, yeah.
0: they're not constipated, they're not unless if maybe they're in a zoo setting and they're eating yeah. sort of like in a natural diet. And that's how we were meant to be as human beings.
1: Correct. We should be, uh, you know, if you look at um, humans that are still hunter gatherers, they're pooping big poops um, uh, every time that they eat. With the exception, if you're in a society that is uh, consuming only animal meats, um, so in the Arctic, during the winter when there's no plant material um, and you're eating only animal products, then constipation is a big deal. On the other hand, is constipation a problem if it's like minus 90 out uh, in whiteouts and you're in your snow (laughs) cave and going out and pooping a lot outside maybe is a pretty dangerous thing. So I don't know, maybe constipation was a uh, okay, thing uh, if you're in the Arctic uh, in the winter.
0: Yeah. Now, we mentioned this at the beginning. I'd love to come back to it. I know we're kind of towards the end of the story, but just worth teasing out on the topic of fiber, you mentioned you have friends that are carnivore, right? They eat yeah. a primarily carnivore diet. How have you seen who can handle more fiber? And how have you seen how certain amounts of plant fibers? can actually be aggravating somebody. How how have you balanced that out and what have you seen from your own experience? So um, there's
1: a big debate in the carnivore world um, that uh, their perception of the various compounds that are in plants are poisonous. And uh, uh, they feel pretty strongly that plants make these compounds basically as insecticides to keep away the insects and by the way, you and me, uh, and they're relatively toxic.
0: Plants don't want to be eaten. These are their defense mechanisms.
1: These are incorrect. And I agree with the carnivores. These are their defense mechanisms. They are also the hormetic stress that help us run our biochemical processes more effectively. Uh, and so my carnivore friends love hormetic stress when it comes to high-intensity interval training. Sauna. Na- sauna, <laughs> ice baths they totally get that hormetic stress is really good. And they get that fasting is really good. Yeah, and I, they forget that plants can also give us hormetic stress, which is why you know I'm, I'm so fond of reminding everyone that you want to have lots of diversity in your plants and ideally diversity in your animal sources of protein as well. Because there are lectins in all living tissue, whether it's plant-based or uh, animal-based. And if we have diversity in those food sources, those little poisons are not going to be a problem. We know that I love kale. I think kale uh, is is a really uh, wonderful food. But if I ate kale every day, day in and day out, the toxins in that kale would eventually accumulate and my health would decline.
0: I had a best friend of mine that did that for years. He didn't really grow up eating a lot of vegetables. And then when he kind of switched his diet and at one point in time became like a raw vegan, uh, he learned how to make like a kale salad. Like I showed him like, hey, listen, you can make a kale salad. You can make it really enjoyable. You could put a little bit of, you know, cold pressed olive oil, organic olive oil. You had a little sea salt, lemon juice. You massage it together and you kind of wilt it down. At the time, we didn't understand that cooking is actually another important process to sort of help make it easier to digest. He ate only a kale salad for years. And then one day he was visiting me here in uh, California and he had just incredible, what he thought was back pain. And then he couldn't figure it out. He was just laying down. He's like, I'm not sure. Then he went back home. He got checked out by the doctor. And they're like, you have a massive kidney stone. And we think, you can't know for sure, but that all that kale has -hmm. been known to, if you just eat kale day in and day out, that could contribute to a kidney stone.
1: Correct. Correct. Diversity is key. Diversity is key.
0: Diversity is key. Um, for you, especially at where you're at right now, do you still include nine cups of vegetables a day in your diet?
1: You know, I probably uh, less. I, I, over time, I became lower and lower carb, so I am much more uh, ketogenic. Although, what I really do is um, I go between a ketogenic and a higher fat diet. Uh, so that I, uh, pardon higher, car- a little bit higher uh, protein, higher carb diet uh, to have metabolic flexibility. Because I think that's what our ancestors really did. You worked incredibly hard to get your food. So you're in ketosis, probably on the basis of exercise. You have successful gathering or hunting, bring back the food, the social compact for the ladies was we cooked for the guys, the guys ate first and we got the food, but we all had plenty of food for a couple of days. So that's the refeed, probably higher in protein uh, and lots of fiber and lots of uh, greens, color, and uh, root fibers. Then we have to go out and get our food. Yeah, uh, And again, we're going to be in ketosis on the basis of exercise. Uh, so I like to think that that's what I'm trying to do is maximize my metabolic flexibility. I will uh, uh, be uh, in a ketogenic diet and then a lower carb diet. I I, want to make the observation. I I now know that my early antibiotics before the age of three meant that I probably have a overabundance of Candida albicans in my gut. And so as over the years- Which is
0: particular group of bacteria, a, bacteria strain? A, a particular group of yeast. Yeast, Because Sorry, I meant yeah. yeast, my apologies.
1: Yeah, because the uh, antibiotics kept suppressing my bacteria so the yeast could uh, bloom. And because your microbiome is set by the time you're age three, my microbiome is set to wanna grow too many candida albicans. Hmm. So in fact, I've come to realize that my mood is much happier if I have a lower carb diet, uh, and so you know, for for years I did a ketogenic diet uh, with only probably about four to six cups of uh, no, of non-starchy vegetables, uh, and very few root vegetables, uh, very little fruit. I now uh, will will uh, probably do uh, four to five cups of vegetables, high fat, followed by a little higher protein, still relatively lower carb. Uh, because I recognize that my mood is much better mm. if I don't feed all of that candida albicans. I also will take some uh, herbal supplements to try and keep the uh, candida at bay.
0: That's uh, that's great. I mean, people are continuously following along with your journey, so they're always curious about how it evolves. Yeah, yeah over you know, time.
1: and I should make the observation. I I, I realize that ever since I was an adolescent, I have struggled with depression. Mm. It has been a um, huge uh, challenge for me, one of the things I discovered uh, is that exercise uh, helped me out a whole lot. Uh, When I couldn't exercise, that was very difficult uh, for my mood. Uh, And now that I could exercise, that's very helpful. Now that I put together, for me, a lower carb diet uh, means that I have much less trouble with depression.
0: I was telling you that I want to introduce you to a gentleman who was just on this podcast. Uh, the episode will have been out by now, Dr. Chris Palmer. And through a hardcore ketogenic diet that still has a lot of vegetables inside of it, low carb vegetables, exactly how you're eating and saying you're eating, he is uh, suppressing and, and having seen seeing remissions of depression, of bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, where patients were on medications for 30 plus years it's quite amazing the work that he's doing out there in Harvard. And I feel like the two of you are super simpatico and I want to connect you, but that just goes back to your point mm-hmm. that there's something that's there. And does that mean that a long-term ketogenic diet is right for everyone? No, because your big thing is you're all about personalization based Absolutely. on your situation. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. The more, if you're, if you're not up, for instance, depressed, or maybe you don't have an autoimmune condition, you may benefit from just a cleaning up your diet, getting rid of the processed foods, having Mm -hmm. some more vegetables, including some of these superfoods that you throw in at the beginning, the fiber, the bone broth, you know, a little bit of liver if you eat those foods. And that could be enough because your basis between your gut bacteria, your exercise, your toxic load may not be as worse as somebody else.
1: Correct. You know, and I think of um, my level one diet is basically a gluten-free Mediterranean diet. Yeah. Uh, And for many, many of my veterans... They did great on a level one diet, uh, and uh, we have others who we need to uh, put in more of a ketogenic diet. Totally. You really want to pay attention to uh, what are their risk factors, um, how are they responding, and I start with the simplest dietary intervention, and we progress uh, if they're not getting the results that they're looking for. But we also progress at the pace that they and their family are willing to go.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, you're one of the few in the space that has really, through your work and the clinic that you were involved in and founding your own clinic, has done research on your methodology. So give mm-hmm. us the latest update. The last time you were on, you kind of gave a summary of the work that you'd done up yeah. until that time. Yeah. What's the latest update on the research as it comes to uh, looking at MS, as looking to the Walls protocol and sure. what it can do for people?
1: So uh, we're up to our eighth clinical trial. Uh, So that's really uh, very exciting. Um, We've got 24 scientific uh, publications that we've published on the various studies that we've done. Uh, The most recent completed study uh, was the parallel group comparing the low-fat swank diet uh, to the Walls elimination diet. Uh, And we're able to show, uh, we had a 12-week observation period uh, show that fatigue, quality of life, and function is stable. Then you randomize them to the Swank or the Walls diet. Uh, Fatigue reduced for both groups, uh, so that's great. Um, The fatigue was more reduced in the Walls group than the Swank group, uh, and quality of life improved in both groups. But again, it was more improved in the Walls group than the Swank group. Um, I I think uh, the take-home message is the standard American diet is not going to help you. If a low-fat diet speaks to you, by all means, do that, get rid of the added sugar, the processed foods, and that'll be very helpful. If you're open to doing the Walls diet, I think uh, you can be hopeful that you'll have even greater reduction of fatigue and an even greater improvement in quality of life. Uh, we have uh, two more studies that we're getting ready to analyze the data. Um, uh, one is uh, a look at uh, people who were newly diagnosed with MS who declined taking drug therapy uh, we uh, and then people who were newly diagnosed who were just getting standard of care and taking drug therapy. Um, and we started that just as the pandemic is going to start, so we had a switch from an in-person visits to a virtual study. Um, we are cleaning the data. We'll be analyzing uh, and comparing. Because this was a non-randomized study. It was people who chose to not take drugs or chose to take drugs. And, and the question is, can the people who didn't take drugs do just as well with diet and lifestyle as the folks who took drugs? I don't I don't know that answer, but when I come back
0: next time, I'll be able to tell you. Well well, it's exciting because I think you know we're so lucky for so many drugs that we have, and we all, you talked about the history of antibiotics. And there's a big question and a review today of do in some instances drugs not make a difference or even worse, do in some instances, do they make it worse to recover, especially when people are leaning into these lifestyle and dietary changes? And that's a good question, because I think previously people would have said carte blanche, you always need the drugs, don't get off your drugs. And of course, people need to make that decision with their physician. It's so contextual, so personal, but especially in the category of mental health, there's now really strong evidence that's there that in many instances long-term usage of psychiatric drugs for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, we had on Robert Whitaker, who's the author of a book called uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic. The data started building up bigger and bigger that these drugs were causing more long-term damage than harm because Mm -hmm. they were attacking the mitochondria. There's a problem. Inadvertently, and it really is just a matter of, if at the end of the day, the goal is to help patients, we should be willing to question the status quo so that we can further contextualize and personalize. It's not go on drugs, it's not go off drugs, it's that when are they helpful, when are they harmful? And the other
1: question is, um, There's a could diet and lifestyle do just as well as drugs? Right. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, this will begin to answer that question.
0: That's great, I'm so happy that you guys are doing that.
1: Then uh, the other study that we're doing uh, is uh, we have an online program that teaches these concepts, the Autoimmune Dimension Master Course. And we took people with uh, MS who um, were randomized to get access to the course or to wait 12 weeks and get access to the course. Uh, And we are measuring the change in fatigue, quality of life, and dietary intake. Mm. Uh, uh, So we'll be
0: looking at that. And is the idea around that, that look, there's not enough doctors, you don't have enough appointment slots, you barely see People directly right now because Correct. you're primarily focused on the research, which is the way Correct. that it should be. So could even online protocols help that have some level of, you know, access and information, could they be helpful, at least more helpful than what we have right now which in is this? Nothing. Yeah, which is nothing. <laughs> yeah. That's a great question.
1: So we're excited about that. Uh, and another <clears throat> thing I'm very excited about, we have a long COVID clinic and we have... Uh, That physician has just joined our team and we're going to uh, add the long COVID population. So those people have persistent fatigue, uh, brain fog, uh, anxiety, depression uh, for more than six months after their their initial COVID diagnosis. We're going to put them through this and we'll see what happens.
0: So it's, it's, so, I, I'm very excited about that. It's truly amazing. You know, we need people at all levels to make progress. We need folks from the inside that are doing these incredible studies like yourself. We need educators from the outside. We need people to create recipe books. Like we got to just hit it from all different angles. absolutely. Because that's the only way that you truly have a true cultural shift is that now people think that this crazy idea, I mean, you literally... I have mentioned this in the intro, you went from being banned from the National Mm -hmm. MS Society to a few years later being given a grant for a million dollars to fund your Mm -hmm. research. And what happened in that time? You didn't stop and you showed what was possible. Absolutely. And that is huge. And I just want to acknowledge you for that for a moment, because you're an important pillar of started with MS, but now going even further of who knows all the different functions and diseases and symptoms that we can improve by following something like the Walls protocol.
1: Now, um, we have a very exciting uh, uh, study that my, my postdoc fellow, Tyler Titcomb did. Uh, he looked at the dietary intervention studies done in the study of multiple sclerosis that looked at either fatigue or quality of life. Uh, and so uh, he's completed that analysis. Uh, very exciting stuff uh, that was submitted to neurology and uh, that's been accepted. He's working on page proofs. He and I were talking about that this morning, uh, and I'm very hopeful that um, when that paper comes out, uh, um, he'll be interviewed hopefully by NPR and a whole bunch, he'll get a whole bunch of press uh, because, no surprise, diet really has a huge impact on both fatigue and quality of life.
0: Yeah, even if you don't have a diagnosis and our hope is that everybody that's listening today, even if you don't have autoimmune condition, even if you don't have MS, even if you don't have you know, parkinsons and some of these other diseases that the walls protocol has have a bunch of case studies of improvement on eating this way is the best way to prevent those things from happening in the future. And on top of that, it's not just about the future, you get more energy now, you get more mental clarity now, you have the ability to focus now, which means more time for all the things that you love in your life. Think about the things that you love in your life. Think about the things in your life that deserve the love and attention. Maybe it's writing a book, starting a new business, volunteering at your local church, mosque or synagogue or temple, whatever it is, spending time with your grandkids, spending time with your husband, your wife, whatever. When you feel good, you have more energy to do all those things.
1: I should tell you that our, our vets made the observation, because we had young young men and young ladies in the traumatic brain injury clinic um, who had lost their love life, who had lost their sex life, who had lost libido. And as we put them through the program, you know, the blood pressure is coming down, blood sugar is coming down, but the men are coming back with a big
0: smile because like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> My friend is back. I'm getting, you know. They they're back to having that morning (laughs) erection. They're so excited. (laughs) Which is a perfect sign of vascular health, nitric oxide production, all those things. If you're if men, if you're listening or women that are listening that have a partner that's a man, if your partner does not have if your man in your life does not have erection in the morning, that's a sign that maybe the diet needs to be cleaned up. Yes. And uh the walls protocol could be a big would part a of that. It would be
1: a big help of that. Uh, and then um, let me tell you about the eighth study, uh, the study that we're recruiting for right now. Yes, please. Um, so uh, this is, will be, I think, the largest and longest dietary intervention study that's uh, been done in the setting of MS. We'll be comparing a ketogenic diet, a uh, walls elimination diet, and a uh, usual diet,
0: Like a standard American diet. Well, people eat whatever they're eating now. Whatever they're eating. Got it.
1: So if they're eating whatever dietary pattern they're eating now, they get to continue. They will come in at time zero uh, for MRIs and uh, measurements of walking, uh, hand function, uh, vision function, working memory, and will get measures of their mood, uh, fatigue, quality of life. They'll come back at three months for some repeat blood work then they'll come back at 24 months and they'll get all the assessments again, including the MRIs. The MRIs will not have um, contrast in them, but they're research MRIs, so it's a much bigger magnet, so we can still see, do you have enhancing lesions or not? And we'll see, did your brain volume change in that two-year period? The primary outcome is what effect uh, does diet have on quality of life at six months? The secondary things that we're looking at are uh, walking, hand, vision, and brain volume change. Mm. One of my hypotheses, which I'm very excited about, is improving your diet can get your brain volume loss back to healthy aging. Mm. Because you see, if you have MS, the uh, average brain volume loss is 0.7 to 1% per year. Wow. Healthy aging is 0.1 to 0.3. Percent per year, so it's if you have MS, your brain is shrinking at three times the speed of a healthy adult. If I can get brain volume loss to healthy aging through food, that is phenomenal. and And I want to make the observation that we know people who do dietary intervention studies, who volunteer, are not like the average American. They have agreed to say, "I want to work on improving my diet. I'm willing to do a ketogenic diet." I'm willing to do the paleo diet. And in my consent, I have to describe both diets. Yeah. So in the control group, we know full well that the control folks, many of them will decide I'm gonna follow, I'm gonna to attempt to follow one of these diets because I got a terrible disease mm. and I want to do better. So we, we have a variety of ways that we'll be measuring what people are eating so we know what the control group is really eating. It's quite possible that I won't be able to see a difference between the three groups because I I I know that all three groups will improve. It's possible that keto may improve the most. It's possible that paleo may improve the most. It's also possible that all three will improve in a fairly equivalent fashion. If what I what I, and so that would be quote a negative study, but if what I'm also able to show that brain volume loss is now, for the first time, the same as healthy aging. Mm. That will have huge public health implications for everyone with MS and for, and for everyone who wants to have a healthy aging for their brain.
0: Because is it correct that we don't have a single drug right now that can stop brain volume loss? None. None. So now we have a dietary lifestyle approach, which not only makes your whole body healthier, but has no side effects. That could potentially we'll see through this what we'll you're see. doing, potentially well, help out with brain volume loss. The
1: side effect that I anticipate, I will have to, uh, and this is what I've had to do for every one of my studies, people lose weight, lose weight rapidly if you're overweight, <laughs> if you lose weight without being hungry, um, uh, and we, we watch that. So far, no one's ever become underweight, um, and I predict that I'll be telling my safety committee you know, every six months uh, all of our weight loss data. Um, and I, I fully anticipate the side effect will be if you're overweight,
0: you'll get back to healthy body weight, which, which there it's are a people good that, side are, that are, that are hoping for that side effect. Yeah. It's a pretty good. S- yeah. Uh, Terry, that's a great review of the literature, the studies that you guys are working on the trials. Um, let's talk to people a little bit as we wind down here about just your ecosystem. If they want to get started down this pathway, they want to try on the Walls protocol, uh, whether they have full-blown autoimmune or a diagnosis of uh, one of the disease states that we mentioned earlier, or whether or not they just want to maybe have that side effect of losing some weight, having better mm-hmm. cognitive health. Where are the places that you've set up with your team for them to get started down that path?
1: Well, the first thing you can do is go pick up my book, uh, The Walls Protocol, in the companion uh, cookbook, uh, Walls Protocol, Cooking for Life. Great place to start. Then you could come uh, to my website, Terwalls.com. Uh, and there we have a whole bunch of resources to help you. Uh, we've got a Walls Diet app um, that will give you uh, recipes uh, to get you started. We have a Walls Protocol mobile app, which has taken the, I believe it was 112 different discrete action steps that uh, you could begin tracking and following. Uh, to help you implement those habits. Uh, Then we have the online uh, program that we talked about, the Autoimmune Intervention Mastery Course. We, a couple times a year, will run the Radical Health Upgrade, um, which is a a coaching program that involves me and my staff. And we have a limited uh, private practice. And so we've got all of that information, again, on my website, terrywalls.com.
0: Beautiful. Terry, if there's a final words of wisdom message for anybody that's out there that's suffering, that feels like they've hit rock bottom, they're not sure how to move forward, but, you know, they're listening to this interview, they're hearing your story, they feel hopeful. What do you want to leave that person with?
1: You know, if I can come back um, to the point where I can bike, hike, and jog in my neighborhood, then they can have hope too. Do this as a family Uh, Sit down with your family, uh, agree what you're going to add to your diet, what you're going to reduce, what you're going to eliminate, and just begin gradually making your changes one small achievable step at a time. If you need help, reach out. We'd love to give you a hand.
0: Incredible. Dr. Terry Wallace, thank you for being on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Please come back anytime and give us the latest updates. Your story is truly inspiring for everybody listening. Thank you.